Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosfero. Today I'm at Goodwood Aerodrome in West Sussex, a former Battle of Britain hurricane and Spitfire base in those days known as RAF West Hampnet. It might be more than 80 years since RJ Mitchell's timeless design first graced the skies on her maiden flight back in 1936, but the unmistakable sight and sound of the Spitfire, the most famous British fighter aircraft, still evokes passion. I'm here to meet intrepid aviator, I don't know whether you laugh when he hears me call him intrepid aviator, Matt Jones, who made history of his own in 2019 when he flew a 1943 Supermarine Mark 9, I think, Spitfire, a silver one at that, 22,138 nautical miles around the world in just four months. He aspired to push the boundaries of what's possible in the iconic single-engine aircraft, climbing a pilot's Everest, and he succeeded. And now a documentary about Matt's extraordinary journey is hopefully soon to be released. Matt captains the Learjet, flies helicopters, other warbirds as a display pilot and instructor. So I feel lucky, really, that I've caught him on Terra Farmer. Matt, it's uh, fantastic to meet you here at Hangar 8 in Goodwood. This is just a toy box, isn't it, of beautiful aircraft, a double-decker boss, cars racing around the circuit. Is this working, do you think, for a living? Yes, I guess. I mean, we're very lucky. Goodwood is a magical place. Whenever you're here, Spitfires aside, there's always fantastic things to come and do. And you're here on a day when there's lots of cars buzzing around the, the very historic track here. And there's such integrity here with, its, you know, with us being based here on the basis that Spitfires have been here for so many years, as you said in your introduction. So it's grass, that's where Spitfires should be flown, and you're here today on a really sunny day, so it doesn't get any better than this. You just sat me down to watch a three-minute film of your adventure, and we'll talk about the music which we used in our introduction in a moment because there's a lovely story behind the music. But it feels a real honour and privilege to walk into the hangar and actually look at the Silver Spitfire that you flew in. She's having a bit of work done at the minute, so it's great to see the Rolls-Royce engine. But tell me a bit about that particular Spitfire and, and her history. So the Silver Spitfire MJ271, as she was known in our RAF history, it's probably now the most original flying wartime Spitfire. And by that, I mean that a lot of aircraft these days are either restored from very little or they've been restored or, or repaired so many times that there's very little of the, of the original sort of integrity that actually flew in the war. MJ271 flew with three squadrons during World War II, 51 combat missions and, and one success. And after that, it was sold to the Royal Dutch Air Force, where she flew until 1956 and then was essentially mummified in a museum. And therefore that kind of protected everything about her. So when we had the opportunity to buy her in 2017, rather than a couple of boxes of, of bits of Spitfire, we had a complete aeroplane to roll into the hangar for restoration, which is unheard of these days. And the remit was, uh, we want to keep as much of this original aircraft as possible. You know, engineers re rebuilding these sorts of aeroplanes, and they want to make them perfect. And for us, perfection was in a history. She's a very, a very, very original Spitfire, a very beautiful Spitfire. We decided that to cross boundaries easily, we probably shouldn't 
put her in a sort of historic war scheme that by stripping the paint off and polishing her original aluminium construction, we'd accentuate the beauty of the design more than just commemorating her wartime history. And I think that's just added to the kind of the way people have engaged with her. On our trip, a lot of people we met knew the wartime history, but quite a few didn't as well. And it was amazing to see people's reaction to the shape, the form that is a Spitfire, with none of the baggage, albeit beautiful baggage in this case, that we have when we see her. So they, they just fell in love with this beautiful aircraft. So when we see the aircraft today, is that aluminium, polished aluminium that we're looking at. So it's the body of the aircraft, but minus the paint that people would be familiar with, perhaps in the Second World War. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. Should have been far too easy to shoot down if she looked like that during the war, (laughs) (laughs) because you can spot her a mile off. She's absolutely (laughs) stunning. The Spitfire, there's no doubt about it, changed the course of history. For you, Matt, what's your personal fascination with that particular aircraft? I mean, we said in the introduction you fly various aircraft, helicopters, but what is it about the Spitfire that holds that magic for you? Gosh, so like so many, it's the first model I made as a little boy. And I I remember as a 12-year-old walking into town or being allowed into town for the first time uh, on my own. And there was a model shop there and there was a Spitfire at the window, which was about the same size of me. And I looked at it and thought, it was radio controlled, and I looked at it and thought, one day, one day, I'd love to have a go at flying one of these radio controlled Spitfires. Never really ever daring to dream the next step might be possible. I wanted to join the Air Force and my interest in the Air Force sort of meant that I was therefore aware of its history and what it did for our country and for countries around the world. I wasn't fortunate enough to get into the Air Force for a number of reasons and went down another path and eventually sort of listened to my child, left investment banking and and started flying again. At that point, I then, being immersed in in an aviation industry, I just realised what, and as you said again in your introduction, what an Everest of aircraft this was for not only its ability, but also for its history. So the opportunity to fly, I didn't really ever even consider, maybe maybe have a go in the back seat of one one day, but uh, it's, it's a very, very special aircraft and it's special for reasons that everyone knows, but it changed our world and it stands for people who believed in their lives and, and the way we held our lives and didn't believe in the aggressors in mainland Europe and what they wanted for our world and were prepared to put their lives on the line for it. And brilliant engineers who designed this aeroplane that gave these brave men and women the opportunity to stand up for what they believe in. And my God, I don't think there's a better story in our in our history of exactly that, of a nation defeating a significant proportion of the world based on their morals and beliefs and, and bravery. Later on, it'd be nice to hear what the tipping point was that made you realise that investment banking wasn't for you and that aviation was. What was the idea of flying around the world in a 1943 single-engine aircraft? <laughs> First of all, I'd like to say I'm sort of I'm I'm speaking on behalf of a team of us that did this. I was one of three pilots, although I did the lion's share perhaps of the flying. There were two other chaps who did a lot of Spitfire flying. We had an engineer with us. We had film crew, so it really was a team effort. And I'm just speaking on on behalf of them. The reason for the trip was really born out of this pride for this aircraft. 
and being involved in this business for such a long time and meeting so many Battle of Britain and World War II pilots and having the great honour of spending evenings chatting to them about their lives and, and realising just how important it was to try and play a part because of the honour bestowed on us and having any association with them to play a part in maintaining their, their memories. And the Royal Air Force's Battle of Britain Memorial Flight do a fantastic job in this country without being paid by the locations they're going to, just on a sort of a, a you know, most deserved basis, will turn up at people's events and do fly-pasts. And that's fantastic. And that alone in this country keeps the spirit of the 1940s alive. There are lots of private operators that do very similar things. So I kind of thought, the UK is covered. We love Spitfires. We play our part by giving people the opportunity to fly in the back and we train pilots to fly Spitfires. But with a single seater, do we want to join the queue of people doing displays? Lovely to do that. We, we actually do do that with another single seater that we have here. But I thought there's a real opportunity that not many people have to, to really take it a bit further than this and to remember that the Spitfire wasn't just about defending the UK. It ended up fighting all around the world for numerous different countries to protect democracy or whatever they believed in. And I thought there's an opportunity to go off on a trip and reintroduce it in some cases and actually introduce it in some cases to people and nations that won't have seen the aircraft for decades. So when you were planning all of this, I'm kind of imagining you with a big map out on the table. I don't know whether that was the case, but how did you plan the route and, and give us a sense of what challenges you faced, given the fact that it is single engine aircraft? And while she looks absolutely beautiful there in the hangar, that's a very old aircraft, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a very old aeroplane. There were a few challenges, that's for sure. But conceptually, I don't think I'd be too far away from the truth of the nugget came in a pub somewhere. <laughs> uh, I've always believed if you say you're going to do something, you have to do it or you don't have any integrity yourself. And uh, having a bit of a big mouth, I told a few people I had this idea. And at that point, it was too late. <laughs> <laughs> so then came the looking at the map and then came the, um, you know, trying to understand how difficult a task it was. Now, one side was preparing the aircraft itself and we wanted to keep it as original as possible, but it but had to make a, a couple of originality sacrifices for it to be able to do the, the trip. But also there was the fact that it's a permit aircraft. So really it's only officially recognized as an airplane in the UK. Ah. So we have to then persuade every other country to recognize it as an aircraft, which is unlike most modern built small airplanes. We we're only flying when we could see, so we can no, no flying in clouds. and. If you can imagine, the average leg length was from the south coast of the UK up to the Faroe Isles. And think of the, the huge diversity of weather we get in that period of time and then extrapolate that around the world and divide 600 by 22,000-ish miles. That's a lot of miles to cover, taking into consideration unknown weather conditions. We also realise that, you know, here at least there's a lot of information available to a pilot to help you make those decisions, but the further remote we got, the less information, so the harder it was to make the decisions as to whether to, to go on each day. We had issue with fuel. I remember trying, get, trying to get fuel into to Russia, and a year before we left, the people helping us in Russia said, uh, I need to know exactly how many barrels you're going to have in each, in each place. 
And I sort of said to him, I said, okay, well, we can give you an estimation, but, uh, you know, I don't think we're really going to know until we're a lot closer, if not there. And they said, no, I need to know exactly what you need now. And it transpired that most countries around the world that don't have general aviation don't have the kind of fuel that we put in a Spitfire that you put into a Cessna or the like. So it had to be specially shipped either into the country in some cases or at least to the destinations we're going to. So with Russia as a case in point, with six months to go, I got to, you absolutely now have to tell us how much fuel you need or you will not have any. I said, well, surely if we get it wrong, we can, we can get some in by road. And they said, well, there are no roads. So okay, well, well maybe, maybe in by, by boat. So well, the seas freeze. Once you get into the certain time of year there, you are on your own. Okay, so uh, let me work out how much fuel you need. So, so that, that kind of level went in and six months before leaving, we knew how many barrels we had in each airport. We had to employ people to protect that fuel because fuel's pretty valuable and there are big barrels of it. And you know, six months on an airfield, it probably won't be there at the end. So we, we actually had guards that we had to, <laughs> we had to employ to, to, to look after it, to make sure it was there, there when we got there. I bet you never thought of any of those challenges no, when you wrote your challenge down over a pint <laughs> no, in, the, exactly. in the local yeah. pub. <laughs> no, no, it was all beer and medals at that point. <laughs> it basically got harder and harder until the day we left. And uh, oh, the day before we left, we had a, What's that? Flying over? Is that the Spitfire? Oh my goodness! I should have known that, shouldn't I? On cue. On cue. Thank you, Spitfire, (laughs) flying over. The day before we left, we were training a Canadian astronaut to uh, to fly the Spitfire, and he guy called Dave Williams, and he came into the office, and I was at that point where I think you know the stress levels had hit the roof, but I was sitting there thinking actually with a day scare there's nothing else I can do so now now it's just fear (laughs) (laughs) and he sat me down and he said Matt how are you feeling and I said yeah this is what I've just said to you is is kind of how I'm feeling he said let me tell you what it feels like to strike yourself on top of a rocket (laughs) (laughs) and he took me through the sort of three hours and 58 minutes that uh, you're preparing you've got jobs to do where you're preparing for launch and he said, in the last two minutes, your job's done. And then for the first of that two minutes, before the engines go, you're sitting there thinking, I'm about to go and do everything I've ever wanted, I've ever trained for and ever wanted to do in my life. And for the second minute, you think, I might be dead in 60 seconds. Oh my he said, the most focusing thing in the world. And, and very gently sort of saying to me, like, I understand the build-up and then that moment of, but very gently, he was saying, man up. You know, man up with pants in space. Exactly. <laughs> so that actually, I slept, right, I slept um, very well that night, thanks to, thanks but what to did him you and think? Chat. I was actually going to ask what you thought when you, when you got into the cockpit the day when you set off. With that somewhat weight on your shoulders, I would imagine, of, of knowing that you're trying to set a record in aviation terms. And it's pretty ambitious. You might not be going to the moon, but it was quite an ambitious mm. trip. Do you remember what your thoughts were when you, when you got in that day and said goodbye to the family and headed off into the distance? Yeah, I mean, it was a very emotional day. It was a, they, IWC and Goodwood put on a huge party for us here and we left. It was a spectacular event. It's very difficult to engage with that, you know, knowing, being focused on, on what we're about to go and do. But certainly it was nice to put the helmet on, strap into the aeroplane and, and get on with the, the job that we'd sort of conceived of three years before, whenever it was. 
So mostly actually a sense of calm, to be honest. I think, you know, we're on the way and, and at that point, it just becomes one day at a time. Well, that, at that point, that is what you've trained for as a pilot, isn't yeah. it? I don't mean necessarily to go around the world, but flying. Yeah. Flying's clearly a big part of who you are and then you concentrate on the job in hand and, as you say, a day-by-day approach. Give us a sense of some of the incredible places you flew over because the footage is spectacular, whether that be over deserts or the pyramids or snow or wherever. Where were the real highlights for you in that trip? I think the first time going into Russia was was spectacular and that was the first time we really felt like this is a very, very big planet and we are a long, long way from anyone. Uh, we were flying legs there of six, 700 miles. There was nothing in between, no scar of human habitation on the ground, no tracks, huts, roads, literally nothing. So that was the point in the trip where I really thought this is, this is spectacular, this is amazing. Not many people see that, do they? I don't think so, and certainly not at that level. You know, we were very low to the ground throughout the trip. I've flown a jet around the world before, but that was at 40,000 feet, and you kind of you disengage from the planet a little bit until, you, until you're until you coming into land. And you know, anyone who's been on an airline and know what that feels like as you're looking out of the window as you get close and you can see people on the beach and know you're going to be on the beach soon. But the bit in between is a sort of almost like um, a time machine taking you to the next place where... You know, we were fortunate enough to be engaged with the ground throughout the whole trip. And we saw some spectacular things that maybe no one's seen before. Very few people, that's for sure. So that was a great honor. And seeing it over the wing of a Spitfire, my God. So that was spectacular. Also Greenland. We had a tricky time getting across the Denmark Straits from Iceland to Greenland, then Greenland onto Iqaluit in, in northern Canada. We'd waited four days in Iceland to get the right weather window. And when we finally went, the actual weather was very nice, but there's a long story that I won't talk about now about fog coming into the airfield we were about to land at and we made it and, and it was, but it was a gravel runway and the, it was all quite, quite hard. And then we saw actually, we were going to, we were planning to stay in this place, Kulasuk for the night. We saw there was an opportunity to make the next leg as well. It might close the next day. So although tired, we decided to push on. And then it was, you know, minus 15 degrees in the cockpit, 15,000 feet over just sheer ice. And it was, you know, not comfortable really. And then out of nowhere, these cobalt blue lakes appeared that we hadn't expected, never seen before. And we were a couple of thousand feet above them and just colours like I've never seen. And there's a photo of the Spitfire against one of those and it's undoctored. It, it, it is, the blues were just sensational. So we managed to get a few photos and that that was a, a, a real kind of, it felt like a pat on the back for a, a hard day's, frightening day's work before we before we landed at Kangalooswak. What uh, about deserts and pyramids and was that so quite magical yeah. too? The longest flight of the longest flight expedition was from Kuwait to Jordan. That was 730 miles uh, and that was a lot of desert. It was a, a pretty uneventful flight but, but beautiful. I, I'd certainly enjoyed that one. We knew if we landed in Saudi Arabia we couldn't get fuel there at all ever so the aeroplane was coming out on a lorry. So that focused the mind a little bit, not that we could do much about it. One of my other favourite flights was the one after that, and that was leaving Jordan and going into Egypt. And again, there's sort of the historical element here where, you know, the Spitfires played such a big part later on in the war in, in and around Egypt and Alexandria. 
but taking off out of Jordan and again having these sort of beautiful salt blue seas, very Martian kind of red mountains. We went past the Suez Canal and then we'd been told absolutely no way could we get a photo over the pyramids. The, the air traffic control just wouldn't allow it. And on this particular leg, we asked again, even though we'd gone through all the procedures beforehand and, and the controller said, not possible, fly this vector. So we flew this, we flew this heading and then he gave us another one and he took us straight over the top of the, of the, uh, of the pyramids. So he knew on the radio that he couldn't say yes, he could do it. But actually, he gave us vectors that put us there. So uh, the cameraman was asleep in the back of the Pilatus. <laughs> he, he got a shot digging the ribs. Up. Yeah. Oh my goodness! They depressurized the airplane to get the the door open on the on the PC12, and uh, he managed to get some some video and some stills of us flying over the pyramids, which for yeah, what a what a great shot, you know. And also a real challenge for you, your cameraman too. It's no no mean feat capturing the beauty and the the magnitude of what you were actually doing. So yeah, that's very very true. He deserves a huge uh, a huge shout out. And I, I didn't really appreciate it at the time. I was like Ben, you know, just bring a camera with you, take a few snaps. How <laughs> be? But it turns out there's quite a lot more to it than that. Uh, no, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more I to it than that. I could fill podcasts with what ones sure. involved that people don't realise. Did sure. you have time sometimes? I know, obviously, your mind was focused on the flying and safety. But were there moments where you wanted to pinch yourself, that where you went back to that little kid buying your Airfix model, and there you are not... Not only with your FX model, you're actually flying one of the most beautiful mm. historic aircraft all around the world and, and taking in parts of the planet that mortals like most of us probably will never have the privilege of seeing. Every day. It was just, you know, the hard work was on the ground. The hard work was getting to a point where we'd made the decision to go, that the fuel was there, that permissions were in place, etc. When you're in the aircraft, it was just... Well, so, so I did 44 of the 74 flights on the trip. And for 42 of them, I felt like I was the luckiest man in the world. It was just sensational. Some of the things you see, you know, and we, we documented it, we videoed it, but nothing compares to what you see with your eyes. You can't recreate that. And I'm, I'm very proud to have those memories. I'd love to be able to share them. That, does, that sounds very <laughs> selfish, but uh, it was just... Um, a mind-blowing experience. I always notice this at schools when kids are in performances and you see parents eagerly filming them on bits of video that you probably never watch again. Sometimes there's nothing like actually just letting that soak in and having that memory. You're lucky because this has been captured for a documentary, mm. which hopefully will come out soon and everybody can enjoy. But there's a lot to be said, isn't there, for taking those images and just always having them in your mind. Yeah, and, exactly. And that, that you've done it. What kind I, I learned of- that very, very early on, actually. I was, I was traveling with a girlfriend many years ago and uh, I just bought a new camera and we were halfway between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. And the captain came on and said, there's killer whales at the front of the boat. And everyone went running to the front of the boat. And I'm like, brilliant, my new camera. And I, I was trying to work this thing out and I, I didn't know where to put my eye. And I, when I finally got up there, the whales had gone. <laughs> I never saw them. Oh no. And everyone else on the boat saw them. That's a big them. lesson there. So a huge lesson, yeah. What kind of reception and warmth did you get on the ground? Because the Spitfire does mean a lot to a lot of different things, to different people in different cultures mm. and different countries. What kind of things stand out? What did people say to you that you always remember? Surprisingly, the place that I remember the most in that respect was Japan. Everywhere we went, there were 
thousands of people and I'm not I'm not exaggerating there were thousands of people pressed up against the uh, the, the fences with wanting to take photos and the like and then we did a kind of an open day in a in a hangar in Nagoya and there must have been I'm guessing 5,000 people in the hangar we turned up in a car outside and there were queues of people it, it is how I can imagine what a rock star must feel like turning up outside a stadium when there's thousands of people queuing to go in and, and watch and we sort of Got in, went through the back door, and sure enough, they're all there, there to see the Spitfire. I mean, there's a country that's gone through a huge change since that war. They've completely changed their outlook as a result, and maybe it's a factor of that. But their warmth was sensational. But everywhere we went, there's a couple of places, you know, in, in, as you'd expect, in the middle of Russia, or sort of deepest parts of East Russia, I think life's pretty hard over there, probably, and uh, each sort of town had no more than 500 people in it, and I think their focus was on survival rather than this sort of event. And I don't know how much they would have known about the history of the aircraft or the war indeed, but we, we kept a fairly low profile there anyway. And um, nonetheless, everyone was charming and friendly. I just come back from Kenya from three days. I've never been to Africa, full stop. Right. And to see how people live there and their warmth and their generosity and their kindness when actually all they're worried about day to day is having enough water yeah, exactly. and food and survival. It, it sort of opens your eyes to what goes on around the world. Um, for the Av geeks among us, and I'm including my 13-year-old son now, and quite a large proportion of the Convex Conversation audience, you said you made a couple of modifications yeah. for safety reasons. What modifications did you make? So the biggest ones we made were to the oil and fuel system, and really it's just adding more of both. The Spitfire is an interceptor, so it was designed for very short flights to create a wall around our country initially, take off, climb very high, be able to fight and then return to base. And those flights probably never lasted longer than an hour. So it, didn't, so it didn't need a great deal of fuel on board, which is obviously the exact opposite to what we needed for our, for our trip. Now, fortunately, with this desire to keep the kind of original design and all at least wartime integrity, Spitfires were used for photo reconnaissance later on in the war. As a result, they made modifications, taking the guns out of the wings, putting fuel there instead and putting fuel tanks um, behind the pilots as well. So we basically just recreated those modifications to take fuel capacity from 85 gallons up to 202 gallons, which essentially meant 350 to 400 nautical miles up to 1,000 nautical miles, which was, it wouldn't have been possible otherwise. It's interesting going, talking about Russia a little bit as well. We have access now, brilliant access to world maps. And those world maps, the aviation maps have airports on them. So when it first looked at, you know, post the pub meeting, how are we going to get through Russia? The only airports on there were probably 1,500 miles apart. So well, how are we going to get through Russia? And so you had another pint. Had another pint. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The, um, the answer will come. But so, so we ended up going into Google, into Google Maps, and looking at where there were any kind of obvious conurbations, towns, etc. Okay, well, there's one there. Is there something that looks like an airport? or an airstrip or an airfield. And that's how we found the places we went to. And we had to take photos or screenshots of these places and then send them to our Russian counterparts and say, we don't know where this is, but we want to go there. And then they had to go through the process of finding out where it was or what it was called and getting, getting approval. So when we left Alaska, we bumped into a chap who was in his 80s who'd been flying around Russia for 40 years. And we said, I've been flying that area that 40 years. Let me see if I can help. And we're like, have you been to Chumacan? He's like, no. Severovensk? No. Have you been to um, 
I can't remember some of the names of the other ones, but everywhere we said he'd never been, most of them he'd never heard of. So that was again another another sort of huge part of the of the challenge of of getting through that part of the world. And were there any hairy moments or moments when you just thought, "I'm not sure this is going to work"? Yeah, there were a couple. We had one. We made a bad decision in Iqaluit. Again, we've been waiting there for a few days. We were actually supposed to meet up with the Red Arrows down in uh, Canada, in Ottawa and do a display there, not not so much with them, but on, at the same event. I knew a lot of the team at that time, so we were desperate to get down there, but unfortunately that never happened. But with that kind of building pressure, decided we thought we saw a window one day and there wasn't a window, and sort of cloud base came down within 15 minutes of us getting, of taking off on, it was supposed to be a two and a half hour flight, and we had to return back to where we'd taken off from, at which point the cloud was now sort of 400 feet above the ground and there's sort of hills and mountains disappearing off into that cloud. And I've got 200 minus probably 10 gallons of fuel on board, which we weren't designed to be landing with. It was only supposed to be, you can take off with that. And so that sort of focused the mind. It all worked out, which was great. And we, we learned a big lesson that day about not being pressurized. And another flight in Russia where we got stuck in between two weather systems that were sort of closing, so couldn't see, couldn't see below, couldn't see above. Everywhere we tried to go, we kind of hit a dead end. I knew that below I could see mountains poking through, so I knew it was pretty unfriendly down there. And, and we were now at a height that if we went into cloud, we'd pick up icing, and icing's bad for wings and aeroplanes and there's no ability on a Spitfire to de-ice it. So a flight that was supposed to be an hour and ten took two and a half hours. We finally found a way around and yeah, there were a few moments in the cockpit then. But I've never felt so lonely, I have to say. But it was a fabulous beer that night. I'm sure yeah, it, I'm sure it was a most welcome yeah. beer at that point, I'm sure. Yeah. You can see, having sat and watched the three minute film that you showed me mm. with the music, what this trip meant to you and how it was an emotional trip. Tell me a bit about the music that we listened to on that film because the whole thing put together with your flying just made the hairs on the back of my arm stand up <laughs> and I'm not even the one who did it so I can see why you'd be a bit choked up but there was a story, wasn't there, behind the music that we opened on? Yeah, yeah, there was. Ben Utley, who did all the filming for the trip, went to a wedding in Hawaii and this girl was playing guitar. He went and spoke to her and said, you're, you're fantastic. Would you write a song for our film that we're making? And she, she said yes. And it took her 30 minutes to write, I think, the most beautiful song. Ben then put, or got in touch with the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra and put them together during lockdown. So, so she was in Australia. Be. Yeah, she was in Australia. They were in Prague. I mean, you talk about talent. So, so she wrote that song in 30 minutes. The orchestra apparently had a day with 20 or so pieces they had to record. None of them had seen the music before. There must have been 100 people in the room. They sat down to do this and they did that in one take. That's extraordinary. Isn't it extraordinary? That's absolutely amazing. So every single one of them read their part, went through the, uh, you know, went through and then literally turned over to the next page. What's next? And it's a beautiful piece of music, isn't it? It, it must just bring so many memories back. So my son was born halfway around the world. When I was halfway around the world, I managed to get back in time for the birth. It was a very, very emotional and, and not uneventful birth. 
I guess they're all eventful, but uh, so whenever I hear that music and whenever I see it, it takes me back to that time and it really, uh, yeah, it really gets me. And you got your Red Arrows moment in the end because when you landed <laughs> here, back at Goodwood, at the end of your Round the World travels, you were flanked by two hawks, weren't you? We were indeed, we were indeed. In fact, we left Lelystad, which is where MJ271 had been in a museum. And again, so now we had a party at Goodwood, again we had pressure to get here, and again the weather wasn't compliant. And again, this time it was the right decision, but we, uh, we got out in a short window. I'd done an extra circuit for the chap that had saved the aeroplane, because at one point her history in the 1970s was in doubt and they were going to destroy her. And he sort of stopped it happening and then spent the next 15 years restoring her to museum condition. And he's still alive and he was there. And uh, so I did one sort of final circuit and a, and, a, and a sort of wing waggle for him as we departed off, which meant I was slightly behind our support aircraft and really pushing to try and catch up because now again, we were over fog and couldn't see anything on the ground. And you were always supposed to have an option with these aeroplanes. If the engine fails, where am I going to land? And that wasn't there. So we were very, very fatigued at this point. I just wanted to get home, see my little boy, make sure we, you know, got home safely and done it. And I pulled the wrong lever in the uh, in the cockpit of the aeroplane. When I found the support aeroplane, the fuel cutoff lever is very close to the um, propeller control lever. And in fumbling around, I pulled the wrong one and the engine stopped. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. you're laughing, but what happened next? Well, actually, it's probably, you know, it's probably the best thing that could have happened because I got this huge burst of adrenaline. I've been taught by military pilots and they taught me this sort of limitation operation indication and if you if, if you do something and you don't get the thing happening that you expecting then undo what you'd done before and don't take your hand off the control until you did so the engine stopped I had no idea what happened I looked down at my hand and saw it on the wrong leaf I better put that forward again and the engine fired reasonably quickly but the boost of adrenaline was such that I now had enough to get all the way back and I realised, of course, at that point, coming on to your question, that um, that we were meeting two of the Reds, Boomer and Doggy, at Dover. By the time we got to the English Channel, it was clear, and then I could see the white cliffs on the horizon. And I think I'm going to go now. <laughs> I've had some very, very emotional moments around these aircraft with the people I've flown and people I've met, but I've never lost it in the aircraft before. In that moment, I saw the White Cliffs, and that was home for us. <laughs> but, um, of course, so poignant of the reflection of sort of 75 years previously, and how young men must have felt coming back from battle every day to see that sight, and what that must have felt like to know they were home. We're very fortunate these days not to be in that situation, but I think that was the closest I could have come in a Spitfire to understanding what that felt like. Anyway, as I'm trying to do now, I had to slap myself in the face and remember <laughs> that I had another boyhood dream 30 seconds in front of me, and that was meeting up with the Red Arrows and leading two of them back into back into Goodwood. That must have been a very, very special moment, knowing was, that your little boy was there, your wife, your family, and you were coming in, yeah. coming in with the Red My little boy slept through the whole thing. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Just remind him of that when he's 18. I will indeed. I will Daddy's indeed. big moment. He's, exactly. he's, he's actually yeah. slept through. But you must have felt a whole, gam run through a whole gamut of emotions when you landed, but also just relieved, I would imagine, that you were home safe and you'd achieved 
the challenge yeah. and realised your dream and you're in one piece. Yeah, it was huge. Going back to the boyhood dreams bit and seeing seeing two of the Reds on my on my wing and knowing the guys as well was lovely because, uh, you know, it's just helmets with visors down otherwise, but I knew both of them. And giving it the whole uh, fingers on your nose. Round arrows, smoke on, go! Let's <laughs> hope <laughs> they got the right colour. Did they put some smoke yeah. on for you? They did. So, so the right so, finger. So, we were, yeah, yeah, we were... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and I sat there and watched while, the, while you know, while the smoke came out, and then, yeah, leading them over the top. It, that that in itself was just one of the most amazing aviation moments of my life, and and it, but it also signified four months of this huge event. And then we did a couple of circuits, and then they disappeared off. And uh, I'm sure it's a lovely, lovely moment for them as well because the Spitfire is so much part of our history. And if you're part of the Royal Air Force, it means a lot to you too. So I'm sure that Boomer and Doggy enjoyed that experience. I had a, I had a, charming, know, a charming letter from them saying yeah. how honoured they were. To be, I'm sure they were, just as honoured as, yeah. as you were. And what's lovely about you, Matt, is that in your business, Spitfires.com, you are giving people who have always dreamt of flying in a Spitfire or other warbirds like the Harvard, the chance to do it because there are two-seater ones here. And that must be an incredible thing to do for a living because I would imagine there's a whole host of reasons why people want to fly in a Spitfire or fly in a Harvard. What's that like for you, meeting people on a daily basis and you and your fellow pilots giving people what for many would be probably a once in a lifetime experience yeah that's a great honor as well it's a word i've used a lot but i yeah, I, I think that's what we are that's what we have here we're very lucky the energy is superb we have between six and 14 people a day coming through sometimes we do two spitfires together for example paying for the experience in the back or fly alongside friends in those in those scenarios and as you say, they are having one of the best days of their lives. When we first set the business up, someone emailed me about a month after we'd set up. And the email went something along the lines of, Dear Matt, thank you so much for the Spitfire experience. It was probably the third best experience of my life after my marriage and the birth of my son. Dot, 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 dot. My wife just stopped looking over my shoulder. It's the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> So we get that kind of energy every day with people wanting to experience the aircraft purely for a love of, of, of history and an understanding of history, but very, very frequently due to some sort of family connection or even having witnessed it. You know, I, I took my father up in one of these and he as a four-year-old remember standing in London watching Spitfires fighting overhead, not really understanding the concept of war or what was going on, but knowing that there were brave men in these aeroplanes fighting for them. So that was his connection to it. We get a lot of that right up to some pilots who flew Spitfires in the war and want to just do it one more time. We've had, I think, 101 is the oldest pilot. We've had up uh, Mary Ellis, one of the ATA, who I flew and was just incredible, just incredible. So, so it's an amazing business to be a part of and it's amazing to be able to give that joy and to play a part in albeit a small part in the airplane's history you know and try and try and keep them flying because they need to you know 
what now feels a really silly question, but I'm <laughs> sounds an obvious sounds like there'll be an obvious answer to this. What was the tipping point between leaving investment banking and flying Spitfires and going around <laughs> the world and uh, giving people once in a lifetime experiences? What seriously on a serious note, what was the point where you thought this isn't what I really want to do for a living, and what tempted you then into aviation? I was basically sitting at my desk and wishing five sevenths of my life away, i.e. five days a week. You know, I'd get in on a Monday morning. I think I can't wait till Friday and my weekend, my, my life happened over the weekend. And for four years, having left university, it was my first proper job and that was, that was fine. But after four years, I thought this isn't sustainable. I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I knew I couldn't join the Air Force. Although I did have one last go at the age of 26 and I had a problem with my eyesight basically. And they... I couldn't go down that path, but I sat underneath this kind of in the city, the, the flight path into Heathrow. And I thought, as a kid, I never really wanted to be an airline pilot, but actually compared to what I'm doing now, I think that looks like a really nice thing to do. So I went off down that path and trained at the weekends and I took a year and a year and a half out of banking and went over to the States and built loads of time and, um, and then came back. So eight years after joining the bank, I got my first job. and. It certainly wasn't straight into a Spitfire. Anyone in the aviation industry knows it's a it's a, a long road to get where you want to go at, at each level. I, I got a great opportunity through a guy who's one of the, one of the team on the um, round the world trip, Steve Brooks. He bought the two seat Spitfire and didn't fly. He flew helicopters, but not fixed wing at the time. And he sort of said to me, "I bought the Spitfire. What should I do with it?" Then I came up with the idea of this business and he and I set that up together. And that's one thing, yeah, so one thing led to another. And when you look at the adventure you've done, the Round the World adventure, what next? Are you content with what you're doing now or have you got any other grand plans <laughs> to uh, head off somewhere and so give yourself a, a new challenge? I definitely have a yearning. And it, it wasn't there for a good couple of years after coming back. The the trip was much, much harder on all of us as a team, I think, than we realised it would be. And it took quite a long time to get over it. But I have a yearning now to travel again. This trip worked because there was a great integrity in the reason for doing it. It's an aeroplane we loved. Going to places that it had been to before or its type had been to before. It was about commemoration. And it was about, you know, sort of uh, reintroduction. And therefore it had a great deal of in integrity as an event and as a, as a expedition. I don't want to fall into the category of being an adventurer necessarily, where you just have to find the next adventure because I don't, for, for me personally, that doesn't, that doesn't fit. There's got to be, there's got to be the right challenge. There's got to be the right reasons for doing it. And so far, I haven't found one, I think, that sort of ticks those those boxes. But you're still going in the pub, having pints yeah. and writing notes on a beer mic just in case. Yeah. <laughs> but I know now to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got plans for me on a sim now, so we'll wrap That's our conversation right. and uh, I'll go and have a go on the sim. But thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure to meet you and, and to time. hear in person about your adventure. I'm looking forward to seeing the film coming out too. Great stuff. Thank you for your time too. You're very welcome. You've been listening to pilot Matt Jones, who flew a 1943 Silver Spitfire more than 22,000 nautical miles round the world in just four months, making aviation history with two other pilots. 
After hearing all about Matt's adventure, I can't wait to watch the documentary of his extraordinary mission. And if you've ever dreamt of experiencing a flight in a Spitfire or indeed a Harvard, Matt has magnificent two-seater warbirds here at Goodwood in Hangar 8 and a team of brilliant pilots. So do check out his website, spitfires.com. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another inspirational guest. Join me then. Makes me